the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's not forgive us our debts because we forgive our debtors. In other words, our forgiveness from God isn't dependent upon our ability to forgive those around us. We'll talk more about that next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, greetings and welcome. This is Abounding Grace. Pastor Gary Wagner returns us once again to the Lord's Prayer found here in Luke. Now today we want to spend a specific amount of time looking at a couple of other passages. To be specific, Matthew 18, Psalm 103, and Luke 11. These are all passages that will help us understand what it means to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, rather than forgive our debts because we forgive others. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with more on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. How do you cause others to stumble in the Christian life? And by the way, the word stumble in the book of James and other places is a metaphor for sinning. So how do you become a stumbling block in the path of other people? Well, by being discouraging. First of all, by not encouraging other people, by leading others to sin, seducing them to commit the same sin that you're committing, or by being unwilling to forgive, or by being unwilling to repent and unwilling to ask for forgiveness. How often, dads, have you asked your children for forgiveness? How often have you asked your wife, for forgiveness when you've wronged her. It is better that a millstone be put around your neck and you be cast into the sea than to be a stumbling block to your children or to your wife. Now look at the verses, look at verses three and four. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Here we are presented with the duty to forgiveness, and it's a two-step process. If a brother sins, lovingly rebuke him. Don't just let it go. Don't just hope it'll go away, because things tend to boil and fester and stir within the heart. If your brother sins, lovingly rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. A simple little formula. The first half of the passage we read in Matthew 18 has to do with what if someone sins. And then it tells us about church discipline. Go to the person in private and try to reclaim him. If that doesn't work, take two or three people, brothers in Christ, to try and reclaim him. If that doesn't work, turn him over to the church elders and they will try to reclaim him. And if that doesn't work, they must 
excommunicate him and treat him as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And that, of course, means an enemy of the church of Christ. So here's the two-step process. If a brother sins, lovingly rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, continue with the church discipline. Then also one brother's correction of a falling or a wayward brother must always be with the awareness of our common guilt and a willingness to forgive in terms of Galatians 6.1, which says, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you are to spiritually restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So if you have to rebuke a brother that has fallen into sin, don't do it with some kind of high-handedness or some kind of arrogance, with a kind of attitude that you're holier than that person. Understand that you are also a sinner and that you are capable of committing the same kind of sin. We must look at ourselves. And if our compassionate rebuke is refused, then Matthew 18 is to be followed faithfully and patiently because church discipline is a means of grace. Now, when someone comes to you and says, forgive me of my sins, Jesus commands you to forgive him. And what you are doing is saying three things. You are making a promise. You may still be mad at him. You may still not trust him. You may not feel very good about him. But you can still do three things and genuinely forgive him. When you say to that person, I forgive you, you are saying, number one, I will not bring up this sin that you asked me to forgive you of ever again. Now, that doesn't include other sins that they didn't ask you for forgiveness or future sins. But if he comes and says, please forgive me for such and such, then you say, I forgive you. And what you are saying to that person is, I will not bring up this sin to you again and harass you with it. Number two, I will not bring up this sin to anyone else. I will not talk about it with any other person. You have asked for forgiveness. I have forgiven you. I will not bring it up to you and I will not use it against you and bring it up to other people. And now here's the hard one. Third, I'm not going to allow myself to dwell on this. I'm not going to sit back and think about how awful I've been treated. Well, I forgive him, but he's still a dirty, rotten rascal. I can't even believe that he treated me in such a way. No. I'm going to do everything I can in the power of the Spirit to keep from dwelling on it and keep these things from filling my mind. That's what you do when you say, I forgive you. And that's why it's important when you sin against someone, not simply to come up to them and say, I'm sorry, I apologize. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm sorry, or I apologize. But that does not require a response from the person to whom you sinned. You are not really helping him or her to be a better Christian. 
You are helping someone to be a better Christian when you actually say something to him that demands a godly response. Not, I'm sorry, but would you forgive me of the sin that I've committed against you? Then that person must respond, yes or no. And, of course, Jesus demands a yes. And when he says yes, he is saying, I'm not ever going to bring this up to you again. I'm not going to say anything about it to anyone else, and I'm not going to allow myself to dwell on it. And then if you say, I forgive you to someone, and you bring it up again, then you have to ask him for forgiveness. Or if you bring it up to someone else, and you've got, then you've got to, uh, someone else, then you've got to ask that person also for, for forgiveness because you've sinned against him. Forgiveness is making another purpose, person a promise no matter how you feel. That is what God says to us when He says, I will remember your sins against you no more. Now, another thing is repentance. I want you to notice the repentance that is required for forgiveness in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Be on your guard. If your brother's sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, what did people do so often in reform circles? Many say that if he wants me to forgive him, he must do everything right for the next 12 months. And then, maybe, I'll forgive him. Well, look at verse 4. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent. Saying that I repent. Forgive him. Now, the repentance required is a minimal thing here. Early in the morning, someone sins against you. Let's say he calls you a name. About an hour later, he asks you to forgive him. You forgive him. Just a few hours later, he calls you that same name. About a half hour later, feeling guilty, he says, please forgive me. I'm so weak. And you forgive him. Lunchtime, you burn the soup. He calls you another name. After lunch, he once again asks you to forgive him. You forgive him. Middle of the afternoon, he does it again, and he asks for forgiveness. You forgive him. That evening, the same thing. You forgive him. That night, the same thing. Seven times, he says, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. Please have mercy on me. And Jesus says, very simply, forgive him. Christian counselor Jay Adams has some absolutely wonderful things to say about forgiveness in his book, From Forgiven to Forgiveness. He says, It is certain then that Jesus does not condition the granting of forgiveness upon the behavior of the offender after forgiveness, but rather has the granting of forgiveness upon the brother's verbal testimony. That is minimal repentance. Now, you're probably out there asking, does that mean that you have to be a sucker for every con man coming and going? Does that mean that if someone is playing you just to maneuver and manipulate you, that you are to forgive him under every circumstance? If someone's playing games with you and manipulating you and you know it, listen to what John Calvin says. Christ is not saying, do not forgive in any sense unless there is repentance. In other words, you can forgive people even before they ask you for repentance. 
Love covers a multitude of sins. Christ is not saying, do not forgive in any sense unless there is repentance any more than he is saying, allow others to make a mockery of you by empty words. So if someone takes this passage of Scripture just to play games with you, you don't have to play that game. But Christ is not giving permission to refuse pardon. Sins are forgiven, says Calvin, in two ways. If injured, put aside feelings of revenge and do not cease to love him and repay him with good instead of injury. And two, when we receive a brother into our favor in such a way as to think well of him and to be convinced that the memory of his fault is wiped out before God. When anyone is suspect of levity playing games... We can still forgive him when he asks for pardon in such a way that we keep an eye on his behavior in the future, lest he should make a mockery of our kindness. So even if people, someone in particular, is playing games with you when he says, please forgive me, you can still forgive him. But that doesn't mean you have to trust him, says Calvin. Keep your eye on him. And watch his behavior, lest he take advantage of your kindness. Here is J. Adams again. The biblical concept of forgiving and forgetting often has been misrepresented. The Bible speaks of fruits appropriate to repentance. One forgives, but he does not immediately forget. Rather, he remembers and looks for the fruit, for the, fruit, for the results that eventually accompany true repentance. It takes time for fruit to grow. When fruit is discerned, forgetting them becomes possible. Perhaps the most evident fruit, and the one that does as much as any other to facilitate forgiving, is the desire and willingness to the forgiven offender to build a new relationship with the one who has been forgiven. Now, here are three principles to keep in mind when you are forgiving others according to our passage. Whenever you forgive someone, keep in mind that each offense is not the third, it's not the fourth, it's not the fifth or the seventh offense. It is always the first. You don't say after he has called you a name four times, oh man, now I only have three more offenses to deal with. Every offense is the first. That was Jesus' point when he upset the apostles by saying, when someone upsets you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. Seven in Scripture is a number for many or complete. We are to forgive however many times we are asked to forgive. Also, forgiveness should develop into full reconciliation where hostility and alienation are replaced by peace and fellowship. J. Adams says, Reconciliation is a change of relationship between persons, God and man, and man and man, that involves at least three ingredients. 
One, confession of sin to God and others who have been offended. Two, forgiveness by God and by the one who has been offended. And third, the establishment of a new relationship between the offender and God and between the offender and the offended party or parties. In reconciliation, enmity and alienation are replaced by peace and fellowship. And I've also read some false comments by present-day reformers who say, that you can't have forgiveness unless restitution is made. But in the Bible, forgiveness does not always demand restitution first. What does the Bible teach about restitution? Restitution means the returning to the rightful owner what has been taken illegally from him. It also means to make amends by doing something or by paying something to make up for the losses or injuries incurred. In the Bible, restitution is a civil punishment administered by a civil magistrate. And it was also a ceremonial rite in the reparation offering, which pointed to Jesus Christ and was, of course, fulfilled in him, who alone can make restitution to God for us in our place. The desire to make restitution to those you have offended, though, is evidence of a true and genuine conversion. So the point is, you don't always have to demand restitution before you forgive someone. But if you have truly repented of your sins, there is an ardent desire to make restitution to someone from whom you have stolen something or who you offended or whom you have caused injury. But restitution in everyday relationships is not to be demanded in every incident or injury or loss. Now, do you know That when you have been forgiven and you know it, it will make you bold. A person with a guilty conscience is easy to manipulate. That's what liberals do every election period. They say, we need to increase the money we're giving to all these downtrodden groups. Because you Americans, you're just a bunch of racists. And you own so much property while all over others over the world are starving. And then you have all these corporations taking advantage and on and on and on. They do their best to make Americans feel so guilty. And then Americans vote however the liberals want them to vote. But you cannot manipulate a man who does not have a guilty conscience. You say, oh yes, I've committed many of these sins. I've I've been a greedy capitalist, of course, not a Christian capitalist. Oh, yeah, I've discriminated against people because of the color of their skin and their economic level. And I deserve to go to hell for these things. But Jesus' blood has washed me as white as snow. My past sins have been dealt with, and now I live for the glory of God. You can't manipulate a man whose sins have been forgiven and he no longer has a guilty conscience. A man who knows he is forgiven is bold and he no longer fears the criticism and the hatred of other people because if God pardons him, no one can effectively condemn him. 
Romans 8 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised to the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then there's that great passage in, in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 2 through 5. And this is a difficult passage normally to apply, but it tells you something of the boldness that comes when sins are truly forgiven. Paul says, In this case, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful and trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be criticized by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even criticize myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet am I not acquitted? But the one who criticizes me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment for the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, beloved, they may seem like it, but these are not arrogant words. These are words inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is not trying to evade just and righteous judgment and criticism and admonition. But he is telling us the value he places on the criticism that's leveled against him by man because of his faithfulness to his calling. And he says, it means nothing to me. He says, the only criticism of faithfulness to my calling that means anything to me is when I stand before God and the judgment that comes from his mouth alone. George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists of the past 2,000 years, was an Englishman who came to America and preached right right alongside Jonathan Edwards. And both of these men were used mightily by God to bring about the great awakening that helped keep America out of the clutches of Unitarianism and Deism in the 1700s. Whitfield had a great critic in John Wesley. Whitfield was an old man and was already considered a great evangelist when Wesley was still wet behind the ears. John Wesley, who was also a great man in many ways, did not like the Reformed faith of George Whitfield and was very outspoken and very sincere in his criticism of old George Whitfield's theology. And he not only criticized Whitfield's theology, But every now and then, he took a jab at Whitfield's character in a slanderous and libelous way. A lot of people were believing John Wesley because he was becoming more famous than Whitfield because Whitfield's career was waning. So one of George Whitfield's advisors came to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, you need to answer your critics. Your critics are many, and their criticism has been severe. George Whitfield then replied, I am perfectly willing to wait for Judgment Day to be vindicated. Now, beloved, those are the words of a man with a clear conscience. Those are the words of a man who knows what it is to hear that his sins are forgiven by his great God.
So, I conclude now by giving you a short test to see if your sins are forgiven or not. Is our revengeful disposition that is so natural and often feels so good, is it being repressed so that we can freely forgive people who really hurt us and injure us? Think on that for a moment. If you had nails pounded into your hands and feet, if you had your back ripped open with pieces of glass and rock tied to an end of a whip, if you had a crown of thorns just shoved down onto your brow, if you had a spear thrust into your side and you were hanging on a cross of raw, splintering wood dying, would you say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.